following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Probably not tennis today, hopefully, maybe soccer. Yeah, get a little soccer in. Um, not tennis. No tennis is, is good, though, because they've, uh, they've had a lot of matches. Sounds like back it. Back to back. Yeah, yeah. had one yesterday as well. And, um, yeah, a little break can be good. I always time. liked the soccer in the rain. always enjoyed playing. I did, too. It was, it was fun, you know. And yeah. I like watching it, too, when it's when it's snowing or rainy. I, I, you know, I remember when I was a kid, um, you'll appreciate this. When I was a kid on, you know, they had the, you know, North American Soccer League. NASL was a big deal. The Cosmos, Pele, you know, yeah. Beckenbauer, all that Beckenbauer, stuff. Beckenbauer, right? Yeah. And so I'd always watch that because I was just fascinated by it. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was really, I was pretty small still. But on PBS, during the season, one night a week, late at night, they would have like an hour, hour and a half long thing of highlights from the Bundesliga. Yeah. And so it was soccer made in Germany. Right. Yeah. And I remember you'd know, watch it and the guys, they, you know, that's when the fields were just really crap. And I mean, they just be <laughs> filthy and then it would snow and they'd play in the snow. Yeah. You know, yeah. and bring out the orange ball or whatever. And I just remember as a kid, just being fascinated by that. Just thought yeah. it was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I remember like football practice just yeah. if it was raining and you got to go to football practice like that yeah. was just fun that's okay um, that was a good yeah. day right? right yeah not like in august during two to two a days when it was hotter no. blazes and, and kids need to have that experience so uh yeah no they, 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 yeah. they do it well just uncomfort discomfort little pain in their life yeah it'd be all right yeah get dirty get dirty well i'm looking forward to talking with peter and i'll tell you what couple of reasons why one i'm fascinated i love the ref you know i got that big ref flag hanging in my yeah. office down in statesboro um and i love you know their museum system is incredible i think it's one of the best ones in the world frankly absolutely but i've always loved in the old you know those old films like battle of britain and stuff like that you know the the, the flight lieutenant right yeah the wing yeah. commander and, and group captain lionel mandrake right <laughs> um, <laughs> i just love their you know the the, the all that stuff I, I think it's i guess really it's it's cool it's just there, there's a good tradition there yeah you know i think which you would expect from from the brits um but yeah this will be interesting this will be a different one for us this yeah yeah he's he's uh He's got that blend of, you know, he's a historian, but he works with acquisitions and, and is in the museum world. So um, he, he's got a different perspective than, uh, than a lot of the people that we've, we've had on thus far. So it yeah. should be a, a really nice change of pace. I think our public history folks will really enjoy this as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, we've had professional military educators. We've had, um, you know, university crew. We've had, um, you know, Joyce uh, doing the publishing thing, and now we're getting into museums. So we're 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 really trying to hit a diverse uh, group of scholars. Why don't you tell us about Peter Johnston? I will. Uh, Peter Johnston is the head of collections and research at the Royal Air Force Museum in London. And that's a position that requires him to be an active researcher and work with the academic and military communities. 
Now, before joining the RAF Museum, Peter was the head of collections research and academic access at the National Army Museum in London. And he started at the National Army Museum as a collections content manager. So he kind of worked his way up the ladder there. He's also worked as a researcher for the Center for Social Justice, and his work there primarily involved researching governmental policies and their impact on UK veterans as they transitioned back into civilian life. Peter also served as a research assistant for the British Library's Propaganda, Power, and Persuasion exhibit back in 2013, and he's a teacher. He held a visiting lecturer position at the University of Westminster and was an assistant lecturer at the University of Kent. He earned his undergrad and MA degrees in history at the University of Durham and went on for a PhD at the University of Kent, and his doctoral dissertation examined the British Armed Forces in the Falklands War. Peter's first book, British Forces in Germany, The Lived Experience, was published in 2019, and it is the authorized history of the British military in Germany from 1945 through 2019. In addition, he's published um, on propaganda associated with the military, um, recruitment specifically, and he's also published on museum collections. He's ha or he has a considerable media presence, and his commentary has been featured on BBC, uh, in the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Express, uh, BBC Breakfast, and Good Morning Britain, among many others. Wow, BBC hey, Breakfast yeah. and Good Morning Britain? I know, that's a big deal, right? That's, uh, that's, that's, that's fat in the cycle, <laughs> man. And as I, as I said earlier, Peter's roles as a researcher and curator give him some valuable insight into what's going on in military history, and we are thrilled to have him joining us from across the pond. Group Captain Peter Johnston. I like it. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing can you well. hear us okay? We can hear. I think you're coming in pretty good. Am I coming through good for you? I can hear you yeah. guys brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, you're fine, man. Uh, I'm Bill Brian. Uh, yeah, hi. Really lovely to meet you, and, and thanks for doing this, taking the time. Yeah. Uh, and hey, no, look, thanks for having me on. I mean, I've been I've been working through the back catalogue, and I've got to, I'm a little bit intimidated about coming on. I mean, no, no, caliber, no, the caliber of some of the historians you had. I mean, it's amazing. Um, thank you for thank you for, thank you for letting me join in. Hey. <laughs> No, most of the time we're happy that you guys are slumming with us. So yeah, but yeah. We, we feel the same way a lot of the time. It's um, it's been a lot of fun doing this and, and we've been impressed that people keep keep wanting to do it. So so Peter, thanks for joining us. You are a person of, of much importance uh, there, there in the RAF museum system. I mean, you're head of collections and, and that's 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 a very big deal. But before we get started, let's say I want to ask you a couple a couple of really mundane things. One, I love the, battle, the movie, The Battle of Britain, and I don't care how inaccurate it is or how stupid it is or whatever, but, but those are real planes, right? I mean, th those, are, those are real planes that they used in that film. Am I correct yeah. on that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Except, well, except most of the JU-52s that are flying around are Spanish. Right. Yeah, they got them uh, from the Spanish Air Force, because yeah. sometimes you can see the insignia through the paint, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah a little bit. And, and some, obviously, some of them are a few later marks and things like that, which certain people... You know the some of the, the keen eyes will, will, will pick up on and and these sorts of things but you know what hey it's um it's entertainment i'm not i think this is one of the things about working in a museum you you recognize when stuff is supposed to be entertainment you know it's it's you, you look at it and you think yeah you know it's not supposed to be factually if it was supposed to be factually accurate it'd be a, it'd be a documentary and by all means that's rail against that when those when that stuff goes wrong 
but you know it's a movie and, and and if it inspires people to to go away and learn more then hey that's that's brilliant from my perspective you know a movie can reach far more people than than anything else and a lot of people know about things like it's not just about the britain but like the dam busters you know some people only right. know about that because of the films right and then they come to us and learn more so it's, it's i'll i'll never disparage films um or, or you know their some of their factual inaccuracies unless you know unless they're really bad i mean don't get uh, I, i'm one of these people that complains when bond is in the wrong station uh because you get you know he, he gets on he gets on a, a northern line train uh and he slides and it, you know you can't get on the northern line at temple so right so yeah suddenly it gets all somewhere where there's no way like, come on man. There, right yeah come on don't don't, don't insult our intelligence here you know? <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> that's great i'm sure you have a, have a sense of this how many like still operational flying hurricanes spitfires lancasters are there very few very yeah. very few there's two lancasters as far as i'm aware uh one is operated by the battle of Britain memorial flight here which is actually flown by serving RAF officers right um and again they've got spitfire and hurricane uh they've got a dakota as well um and they often do a lot of the big pageantry the ceremonial stuff uh, there's one uh, Lancaster in, in, in Canada as well. And actually a few years ago, that one flew over here and they did a couple of joint fly pass with the Battle of Britain. It was, it was pretty incredible. Um, oh, yeah. But no, there's, there's very few of these things flying around um, properly authentic. I mean, everything just reaches a stage where it, it just doesn't, no longer has a certificate of airworthiness. There's a few that still, there's been a few sort of post-war rebuilds. Technically, it can be classed as an original Spitfire if a certain percentage of it is original, if it has the original sort of boilerplate from the engine or something like that that's sort of factored into it but you know it's it can be 90 percent 21st century and 10 percent you know 1940s era uh, and yeah. then still be classed as original but th there's there's a few but obviously you know in comparison to how many there were it's, it's virtually nothing and, and you know there aren't even museum pieces of some of these aircraft you know uh, a short sterling which is a, re a really important bomber in uh, in in the RAS bomber efforts and bomber command particularly in Europe you know um the only thing with the shorts that we've got wreckage of a short sterling that crashed on a training uh, accident and that's it there isn't a complete airframe left one of the things you, you often find is you're like well you've got you must have one of every type and it's like no i mean i'd love to i'd need a museum five six times the size for what we've got but no we just don't you just don't have them and it's even worse with first world war aircraft as you can imagine oh yeah yeah i guess you you, you probably you probably don't have much success with uh, what we would we, call here with barn finds right there's, there's not like one of, uh, I don't know, Sterling Moss's race cars, you know, shacked up in some barn somewhere in Surrey. I mean, look, never say never. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but no, I mean, occasionally I get, uh, I had a, had a great email and great correspondence with somebody in New Zealand who'd found a, a Fairy Gordon, probably the only one. It's, a really, it's quite a significant interwar aircraft that had crashed and was just in the bush in New Zealand. And he found it and was restoring it. Um, and doing a really good job you know our, our museum's own Halifax that we've got in uh, downstairs in, in, in the hangar on display you know that came off the bottom of the fjord <laughs> where it was discovered oh, wow. by divers wow uh, it was it was lifted yeah um, so yeah so you know we've got a, 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 a Gloucester Gladiator as well that had sunk through the ice in the Norway campaign of 1940 and again is lifted up so you know the not so much the barn finds but occasionally you do find find the relics or, or bits of cobbled together you know we've got a we've got a, a, a bow fighter uh, here that we uh, it came out of the Portuguese uh, Air Force, but actually we'd uh, we traded we'd uh, we we'd, we'd had one that we'd rebuilt essentially out of about four or five different wrecks that have been recovered in the Far East and the jungles of Papua New Guinea and all this sort of stuff. So um, 
it's it's funny because sometimes you have the authentic aircraft, like the absolute survive. You know, they were absolutely there. I mean, our Lancaster here, S for Sugar, flew 137 missions. Uh, the average was 23. So you know, this was recognised wow. as being an incredibly historic aircraft and was pretty much shoved into storage as soon as the war ended, uh, waiting for us to take it. Today, uh, at the time of this, when we're recording this, pretty momentous thing for us because the Bravo November Chinook, uh, the most famous helicopter the the RAF ever had, has, uh, has arrived at the RAF Museum today. Uh, I've been working on that acquisition for nearly a year, so that's hey. So I, I saw that on on your Twitter feed earlier this morning. I was going to ask you about that as as we get into this. So why why is that aircraft so significant? What what's the big deal about that? So uh, it's it's different for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's really significant to me because uh, my, I mean, my doctorate's on the Falklands and uh, obviously her connection with the Falklands and we're about to hit the 40th anniversary of the Falklands and a uh, commemorative period starting from the 2nd of April. So to be able to bring her into a museum, allow the public to see her get up close, see this real survivor is amazing. When you work in, when you work in the, the environment that, that, that we do, you know, it's all about building connections with people, about using the stuff. You know, the reason I love museums is I love the stuff there's nothing quite as inspiring as aircraft it's amazing really you, you can just see the emotional response everybody has to them um whether you you know whether you're you've studied them for a really long time whether you had a, a family member who flew them or or worked on them or whether you know it's just a tiny child who's just amazed by their size you know that's the wonderful thing about working in museums um and working in the rs museum but with the with bravo november because she you know she was one of the original chinooks the rf ordered uh, she comes into service in 1982. She's the only one that survives the campaign. The rest of them go to the bottom, burn up when Atlantic Conveyor gets hit on the 25th of May uh, right. by the Exocet. Yeah. So, but all of her replacement spares, um, the the maintenance kit, the, you know, everything that would normally keep her flying and be used to put her into flying goes to the bottom as well. So suddenly, they, it's not only she's got to keep flying, she's got to take on more work than was intended, and they don't have any of the kit to do it. So. You know, it suddenly it becomes more than an airframe. It's about triumph over adversity, endurance, adaptability. You know, all these really important human stories that have been so key to any successful campaign um, for for any nation at any stage in history. All of that begins to be factored in too. But then it's just her longevity after that. You know, the, the, when you think about museums, museum exhibitions are built around survivors and relics and witnesses. And for Bravo November, you know, she's served in every campaign that the RS been in for the last forty years, which is remarkable. You know, one airframe. Yeah. So off her, we can hang stories about what we're going to do for the Falklands, obviously, because of where we are in, in, in 2022. But then there's the Balkans, which is this really under-researched part, I think, of military history, right. particularly British military history, or at least less, less well-known. We're going to do Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, bits in between. Um, she's been everywhere. And so she's not only about, about, about British history, about global history. And so, you know, yeah, she might be in a, in, a, in a shed in the Midlands in the UK, but she can tell stories from across the world. And I mean, that, and that's pretty cool. So do you, cool. yeah. I assume that you, you have a list of all the crews, all the air crews, right? So, so she had four, so f uh, four pilots on the DFC flying her, again, which is incredible for one aircraft. Um, we've interviewed three of them. One of them died shortly after the Falklands War, uh, unfortunately, so we never got a chance. But we did interview his co-pilot and pick up some of the stories of there. So, yeah, so, but we've also got stories of, of crew who serviced her on the ground, uh, commu the community at RF Odium, where she's been based and where she's come from. That's where the Chinook Force is, guys who were in 18 Squadron before uh, and after the Falklands and, and all these different things where, where she's sort of been part of people's lives. And, you know, she's got, you know, she, the, the Chinooks nickname Waka Wakas in, uh, <laughs> in our, because of, obviously because that really distinctive sound they make. But what's amazing is the fleet's still going. 
So, you know, before she's come to us, they've taken parts out of her to keep, to put oh, back wow. into the wider fleet. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's definitely her. And it's through all her, her upgrades and all this sort of stuff that she's been cycled through. It's, it's an amazing story of, of, of endurance, but also capability. Because, you know, sometimes you get tech that hangs around in the military for a long time. Um, and that's either because it's the absolute best and it does exactly what it's supposed to. And sometimes it's because there's nothing, nothing better has come along or as is sometimes the case with the British, they, they've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money trying to find something better and still haven't quite managed it yet. I, yeah, tell but, me about it, man. I wish we still had the A-10. I mean, that's, <laughs> I still think that's the coolest airplane in our, that we've ever had. But so what's the status of, of the, the Chinook? Is it, how much work do you need to do to it or what, what's, what's its status? Well, hey, I mean, the RAF have been amazing, actually, in, in, in helping us with it. And, you know, not only have they, have they signed her over and, you know, decommissioned her and, and signed her out, and, and they recognise how significant she is as well. So it's a real honour they, they, they believe in our mission and they trust us and they're working with us because um, we're, we're not in the R, we're, we're separate, we're the RF Museum, but we're a separate organisation, so we're all civilians. So right. we're, not, we're not part of the, of the military here in the same way that... Um, the, the US Air Force Museum in Dayton is, for example, or some other military museums around the world. So, you know, having that connection is really important for us um, and the trust put in us to tell the story properly. So we're really grateful for that. But also, they, you know, they're going to come and physically rebuild her for us. So the pylons are going back on, the rotor heads, the transmissions, the pins are going in, all this sort of stuff to hold the blades wow. in place. How cool. That's awesome. It's really, yeah. It's That's gonna amazing. Five days, it's going to take five days to build her and the guys are going to be really, really key. And um, and they've moved, moved her for us as well. So, you know, they've been brilliant. I, I can't thank them enough. You know, we, we always like to start by talking about uh, how you got into this. Um, so tell us where you're from. What did your parents do? And uh, what made you decide that you were you were going to get into history? I've sort of let forward a bit, haven't I? Yeah. So um, no, no, it's uh, great. This <laughs> Hey, that, that that was completely organic. That's what, no, that, that's that's, what you yeah, want. Yeah, that's I was like I said, I saw that tweet, your tweet this morning. And I yeah. was like, wow, that's cool. And how timely. So, um, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so I uh, I grew up in a in a town in Buckinghamshire, just outside of London. Um, predominantly, I, I lived in Kuwait for a while in 1990. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then and then and then moved and was at home when that all happened, and then just never went back. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Buckinghamshire, and I grew up in a town which actually a lot of people know because it has a model village in it, Beckenscott Model Village in in in, in Beckensfield, uh, Buckinghamshire, and people from all over the country know that. It's amazing. I, I moved 250 miles to go to university. Um, and the first thing I said to someone was, oh, I'm from, from this town called Beaconsfield. And he said, what, with the model village? And he was, you know, <laughs> and he was from 150 miles in the other direction. So it's, it's quite funny. Yep, yeah, tell, uh, me that, tell me that that's the one they filmed that uh, Midsummer Murders episode at. Uh, it's not Midsummer Murders. Not... They sort of, they, they, um, have you seen the film Hot Fuzz? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah all right. It's, it's, got it. It's, 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 they've got elements of that, and they also they filmed part of that in the uh, in the in the pub, the Royal Standard, uh, in, okay. in Beaconsfield, where I grew up. Well. The, the, when they have all the shootout scene and stuff like that, that's filmed. Uh, Very nice. Filmed in one of the, the, cool. the pubs in. Because uh, I know the know. model village thing is kind of a thing in England, right? There's like I I know of at least five or six of them. I think that I've. I mean. Beck, randomly I, I, come I, across i mean I, I, yeah i got i got to, i got to defend beckenscott's corner i mean beckenscott makes it is, you know claims to be the oldest one in the country in this stuff and it's fantastic and it's great and if anybody everybody's ever in the area i heartily recommend that you go yeah. uh it's a very pleasant way to spend a spend a few hours um but yeah anyway so um uh, i grew up there um my my dad worked in 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 finance um my mum uh was a my mom worked in a, was a nursery teacher for a while um 
looked after us a lot of time and then actually she she retrained and became an occupational therapist and and, and worked in the nhs and she's just about to retire actually oh, congrats um, to so done, done a pretty, um yeah i mean completely you know just retrained went straight in and, and done some pretty amazing stuff so yeah so pretty pretty fantastic but the the i think there were, i've always loved history always loved history um and i think that's come from a couple of places um one i was really lucky growing up that my my grandparents were uh were still alive in fact my my grandfather is still he's 99 um oh, wow. and he, he's, he's still alive and you know holding thumbs and touching wood and all, all this sort of stuff um uh so I, I grew up you know listening to his stories about time during the war he was in the uh he was in the home guard uh he was 18 in 1940 when the, but uh he was in the home guard because he was in reserve occupation because he um he was a draftsman and the, his company built air sea rescue boats that would go out and pick pilots up okay. in the ditch in the channel and that sort of stuff and he loved the raf he absolutely loved the RAF. he tried to join air crew in in 1940 accused me a damn fool by his boss who wouldn't let him go because of the contribution he was making to the war effort but yeah he loved the RAF um and I picked up a lot of that from him you know my some of my earliest memories are are you know playing with his model uh Spitfires and Hurricanes and he had a a model airfield like a proper like 1940s airfield with Nissan huts and a paper and a control tower and and on the backdrop it had you know Heinkels and Messerschmitts and little puffs of flak and stuff and I just that's how I spent my childhood is growing up listening to him talk about his time in the war and the other side my on my on my father's side my uh my great-grandfather was a was a war hero in the second world war uh in the merchant navy so you know I, I grew up sort of immersed in this sort of stuff and then it just it just grew and one thing led to another you know the, the rf museum is actually the first museum i ever remember coming to as a child i came with my granddad um you know i built my i bought my first airfix model in the shop here i got my first i was going to ask you if you did airfix models yeah. not never particularly well uh, yeah i, I you know, I glued my fingers together. I, I just about, I just about managed to build it with the help of my grandfather. So, uh, quick, quick aside, and we're, we'll do this to you throughout because we just kind of let this flow. Did you see uh, James, that episode of James May's Toy Stories where they built the one-to-one scale Airfix yeah, yeah. Spitfire so, model, right? But, and that model, that model Spitfire is currently in Cosford in the RRFs in the RF Museum's site. It's currently oh. sat there. Well, I remember um, that's where they put it together. Yeah, it, yeah, uh, yeah. So that was that, really that, cool. That, it was pretty cool. And they, they've done like one with the Lancaster as well. I mean, this stuff is amazing. It's, it's amazing. Right? Yeah. Uh, but again, all that inspiration of all that sort of that technical stuff come, comes through. And, you know, my, uh, as I say, my, 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 my granddad had, had die cast aircraft. He had models that he'd built himself. Um, he had all these, he had all these wonderful old pamphlets um, that he picked up during the war, like uh, target for tonight, um, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, A to Z of the RAF, uh, these sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I had all this military growing up, and it was pretty. It was pretty inspiring for me. And then I just, yeah, I just fell in love with history. Um, that it became seems like a, a natural. They so are natural pathway to your fascination with the stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because well, early on, you had those, you know, all that military to. to yeah, all the all the material material yeah. culture stuff. I wanna I wanna jump forward because I was gonna actually ask you about your great grandfather, but uh now now's the time to to bring yeah. it in. Um and, and I found out about your great grandfather because I was looking at uh your your blog, which it doesn't look like you are very active on the blog anymore. But I, I, I was. Yeah. The, 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 the I was actually reactive on the blog and then actually you know what work and um 
my uh, working on my book and and that sort of thing sort of took over it's something that yeah. I, I really like um i just i've fallen away from a bit um i need to i do definitely need to pick it up again though but i'm well i'm glad you found it i hope yeah so <laughs> I hope you somebody found it at least mildly interesting but you know somebody on there asked you you know are you uh are you related to the uh peter johnston who was a master on the uh i'm looking at the ship the san elicio San and, Elysia, uh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I looked it up. That's a great story. I mean, what it was hit by a German submarine, what, four torpedoes or something like that, yeah. and and never went down. So, no, um, and yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And he, and he was a veteran of the First World War as well. Okay. So, really? so this was in the, yeah, so this was in the Second World War. He was in the Merchant Navy. Um, he was a proud son of proud son of South Shields uh, up in the northeast uh, of England, and uh, yeah, he was in the Merchant Navy. But in in 1942, he was in the San Elysio, and he was coming out of out of Barbados, and um, they were he, they were struck. But he and the mate managed to essentially keep the keep the ship afloat, turn her around, weather the weather the sort of the, the attack, and through some pretty aggressive maneuvers, drive off the the U boat, and then and then bring her safely back. Um, for which he was. Uh, he was awarded with the the Lloyd's uh, Medal for Bravery at Sea, which is actually um, uh, I, I'm lucky enough to to own now. Um, oh, that is awesome! Very nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, 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 he, he's fantastic, and um, yeah, he was an incredible uh, in person. I, I never knew him, but it's um, in my grandparent. I mean, I can still sit in my grandparents' house. Uh, there was a, a framed picture with the of, of him and the, the citation. Uh, and he's amazing. It looks just like my dad. Like it's amazing. It's incredible. Like it looks exactly like it, you know. If my dad put on a naval uniform, it would it, it would fit. So it's 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 amazing. And uh, yeah, so it's a really proud tradition. Uh, something yeah that I grew up with and around. And um, you know, not everyone. Lots of people have great war stories in their family. Um, yeah. Lots of people are really rightly proud of it, and it's wonderful. I always love hearing people's. You know, I working just walking the museum floor. People will, will often stop you and tell you about their their relatives and their family, and it's it's always amazing because that's how we keep this. That's how this stuff keeps going. That's why people have an interest in this. It's it's the stories that we tell. It's, it's it can be really powerful. So yeah, I'm 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 really lucky in that regard that that I had the opportunity to pick that up because so many people just just never have had that same opportunity you know unless people had asked before them you know unless their parents had asked their parents and or their parents or whatever people just didn't have that so there's some you know some people might have incredible connections that they just are never lucky enough to know but but fortunately for me I was um I was able to to, to pick them up and follow them and and I've always been part of it and um I also had a great uncle Jimmy Launders who was a who was quite big in submarines uh he was quite in fact I think he's I think he might still be the only person who's ever uh, sunk another submarine whilst both were submerged. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, he was. He Jimmy was my uh, was my was my great uncle, uh, great great uncle. Um, and then he went out to Singapore after the war and all this sort of stuff. He was a he was a major submariner. And I know when I when I was doing my doctorate, I interviewed a couple of people that had been on the Conqueror, the submarine that that sank the Belgrano, and some of them had met him, and that was pretty incredible. Uh, so again, not someone I, I'd never I, I'd never met Jimmy. He, he passed away before I was born. But uh, it's um, yeah, it's it's quite just you, you have these stories and, and and lots of families have them and yeah, I, it's always sort of helped shape what I found interesting and cool. <laughs> yeah, no, those are that that is that is great. Yeah, you're right though. I mean, those stories that you know people um, you know even as as a professor, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times students just drop by your office and look around. See, you know, the the knickknacks you have on the wall related to military history, and they want to tell you about, you know, their uncle who was in Vietnam or, you know, their grandfather in the Second World War. And, uh, you know, that's 
you know, we, we have to embrace that. That's, uh, that's, that's one of the, the, the really established connections we're always going to have with the general public. Yeah, definitely. And although interestingly in the UK, I think, you know, we're getting slightly further removed from that, you know, as, as, as the, as the, as the British military has shrunk and shrunk really considerably, particularly in the last sort of 20 years, people's sort of direct connection with people who served is getting less and less and less. Yeah. Same um, here. But, same here. And, yeah. and and you know, there, there will always be the, these huge these huge uh, this huge sanctity around various events that people took part in. But uh, yeah, the, the sort of the other campaigns and the, some of the smaller stuff, you know, the things that it's historians I mean, might want to actually look into a bit more and understand a bit better because they don't have that place in in public consciousness, or they might tell us something more that we don't already that we don't already know. Um, that's actually decreasing. So quite how you can build interest and, and, and hook and bring people in and talk about that and, and harvest it while it's available is, uh, yeah. is, is, is actually quite a challenge when you work in the, in the museum world. Um, the other thing you've got as well is distortion. You know, invariably there's some distortion around some of this, around some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's legends in families and these sorts of things. And sometimes you have to, sometimes it's quite difficult because you get written inquiries about people ask about their relatives. And you have to be the one to tell them their family story is not necessarily the whole truth. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they can be they can be one or two things. You know, they can be someone who claimed you know claimed they were you know um, one of the Battle of Britain pilots, uh, and you know they they'd done six weeks of training and broken their toe and been invalided out or something like that. Or, or occasionally, um, there's a I don't know if you've, you you've probably seen the the Battle of the Somme documentary. You know, the Malins one. You know, the the famous movie with the guys carrying the um the the person out. Right. Uh, the yeah, I mean, when I worked at the National Army Museum, I'm getting inquiries about that, you know, pretty regularly. You know, we're, we're talking multi, we're talking, you know, more than ten a year, where someone said, "I think this might be my relative." You know, what do you think? Here's a picture of them and stuff like that. So, you know, it, people always want to know, um, but frustratingly, and you guys will know this, you know, everyone assumes that documentation is like the absolute gospel, and you know, everything right. is written down and there's photographs of everybody, and you're just like, no, sorry, like. I, there's only a limit to what I can say. There's literally a limit to what I can tell you because no one wrote it down. No one took pictures of people. Um, you know, people spelt names wrong. Um, yeah. You know, we, we saw this with um, we, we saw this recently with the the report the Commonwealth War Graves Commission published, and you know they 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 very honestly owned up to this and said look, you know this was a this was a problem when no one recorded these people's names, and and so the, the whole framework of how we research people is is got to be completely different for for huge swathes of people who served in uniform. It's the same with the the British Indian Army, uh, or the armies of India. You know, the armies of India were absolutely crucial to, to British military success in the First World War and in the Second World War. Oh yeah, and the documentation around them was is, was is just poor. And that's why uh, recently there was a discovery of a of a ledger in uh, in the in Lahore in modern day Pakistan, which lists the name of. Of, of of every soldier from every village in the Punjab oh, and wow. what happened to them and it's and it's a game changer and it's such an incredible resource and I'm I'm so pleased that people are going to be able to investigate that and look into that more because it just it it transforms how people can engage with the past I think that's pretty cool uh you know it's it's not it's not so often you get these sort of Indiana Jones-esque moments where you make these huge discoveries but but those those guys got it and um yeah well done to them. I'm really looking yeah. forward to seeing the, 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 the research that cascades off the back of that. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a real find. Uh, you're right, because, you know, so often it's hard to find information. And even, you know, just teaching a world history class, um, you, you try to find underrepresented voices. And so, you know, you don't want to do just Robert Graves or Ernst Younger, and you start looking for someone who served in the Indian Army or someone, you know, a, a soldier from Africa. It's really hard to find those things in English uh, to, yeah. to, to give them to your students. Yeah, it is. And actually, I think 
one of the things that I think came out of the first World War centenary here, and particularly in the UK, is um, one, it was great that there was such a, uh, an interest in, 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 in the First World War and learning more about it and engaging with it. And I know Amy talked about this when Amy recorded her episode. You know, she talked about the, the big public art, the poppies, the, uh, the Jeremy Della art um, installation where the people in the stations and all that sort of stuff. And that was brilliant too. But actually, I think um, we still didn't really get beyond this sort of overall sense of, of futility and loss associated with the First World War, despite a lot of people's you know, strong efforts. And we still didn't really get to the sense where we could talk about the First World War as a victory. But what we did do, which I think is really key and really significant, and, uh, and Santanu Daz uh, says this a lot, you know, we, we, we changed the colour of memory around this stuff. So people's understanding about the multinational, the empire and the Commonwealth effort that went into this from a British perspective really transformed. And I just think, and, and that's what's going to keep interest going for another 100 years, you know. Yeah. I worked at the National Army Museum when we did the bicentenary of the Battle of Waterloo. And, you know, Waterloo, incredibly significant. Wellington, British, Britain's greatest general. But, uh, yeah, no, no one really cared that much. So, in a pure comparative perspective, people did, you know, we, we, uh, we, we, we did some polling that, you know, more people thought that uh, Dumbledore had commanded uh, the army at Waterloo than, than Wellington. Yeah. Um, but even then, you know, that army, that's not a British army, it's an Anglo allied army. There's, you know, there's Dutch, there's Belgians, you know, there's, you, you've got your Irish in there too, uh, making up a huge component as well. So again, all of this stuff is really key when we begin to unpack it. And that's where you can build connections and shared heritage with people. That I, and that's what I love about this stuff. You know, you can show people something from pretty much anywhere in the world. And sometimes it's challenging and sometimes it's difficult, but you can always have a really good conversation out of it for sure. Peter, trace for us. How do you how do you end up at, at Durham and then at Kent and then, you know, in that process, determine that you're going to get a, a advanced degree in, in history and then the Falklands, you know, where, where does that fit in yeah, yeah. your, your story? Uh, and then then I want to you know ask you about how you got in, you know, obviously got into the, the what we would call the public history, you know, field, uh, the museum, museum field. But how'd you get to Durham and Kent? How, how, did, how did that go? Interestingly enough, I, I applied to Durham having never even been there. Again, my, my parents, my parents didn't go to university, but you know, my, my my dad said, "Oh, well, you're, you know, my grandfather went to he went to technically went to Newcastle, but when he was at Newcastle, the faculty was in Durham, so he said he went to Durham, and you know, here's some pictures of it, and I looked at it, and you know, there's a castle and the cathedral, and I thought, wow, that place looks pretty cool. I'll apply there, and and you know, it it was it was an incredible history department, really highly rated, um, uh, and I was really interested, and I've you know I've been looking at a couple of schools, you know, I'd, I'd applied to Oxford and, and not got in, you know, um, I was looking at Sheffield, um, Lancaster had a good had a really good program, uh, Leeds good program again um but I, I looked at Durham I thought and I went up and I, I had a look around I instantly just fell in love with the place I mean it's magical it's if you're on a train from uh from London to Edinburgh um or anywhere to uh, from the south up towards Edinburgh um and I still and I still do it you go across the viaduct which is the big railway bridge uh, and you come and you swing around the corner and then you just have the, the castle and the cathedral and you know it's yeah. this is there um, yeah. and I still get I still will get out of my seat and go and stand by the window and look at it I go it's past. a beautiful place and uh, yeah, so I went there. But, you know, Durham's funny because having been really interested in military history, having been really motivated in military history, I'd, um, my, uh, my, co my, uh, my coursework as a, as a student at school uh, on the Battle of Waterloo and this sort of thing. Um, but having gone there, been really interested in military history, they didn't do a huge amount when I was there. Um, the military history they did do was predominantly medieval military history. Um, I mean, they had a fantastic module on castles uh, taught by <laughs> Michael Presswich, who Michael Presswich was, was, was incredible. 
Um, he would, you know, bring in a model of a trebuchet and start launching marbles around the classroom. He, he'd just bring these, he'd bring <laughs> these, you know, these, these ruinous relics to life in the most amazing way. But yeah, so there's a lot of medieval history, you know, <laughs> I, it, it, it's you know it's a bit of it's it's a bit of a distortion but it's, but it's a bit of a joke that in Durham anything after 1500 is really classed as journalism rather than history <laughs> uh, and, but you know you see it in the you know you, you're walking these ancient stones and these ancient cobbles um, and you know you've got the the poem about castle you know great towers of Durham you know half church of God half castle against the Scots you know all this sorts of stuff you know that, and yeah it was it was amazing and it was a fantastic place and I loved it and I had three wonderful years there uh, and the end of my, towards the end of my third year, I thought, you know, I've, 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 sp I've spent a lot of time playing rugby and I've had a lot of fun. Um, I've got no idea what I want to do next. So I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll do a master's and, and, I'll, and I'll have a think. And I'll, and I'll have a think. Got to the end of my master's year and thought, yeah, I've had a great time playing rugby and, and, and having a lot of fun. And now I've got no <laughs> idea what I want to do next. So I, um, I started applying for various graduate schemes, uh, the UK civil service, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then one of my, my tutor at Durham at the time, um, Joe Fox, who is probably one of the most inspirational figures in sort of my history career for me. Um, she was the real reason I fell in love with this as a subject and thought I could do it, almost thought I could do it as a career. Um, she said, oh, there's going to be a, a studentship for a PhD at the University of Kent. You know, would you be interested in applying? And I thought well, I'd always wanted to do a PhD. I'd always assumed it would be something I would do in later life. You know, I thought I'd have a career doing something else first and it might be you know then I'd indulge what was essentially like my hobby and I thought no you know why not I'll just give it a shot and I'll apply and you know I had all sorts of ideas about what I might do when I left university and I, I thought about I thought about the army I thought about thought about being a lawyer in the army I watched too much jag as a child obviously and had no idea what was going on I was going to you know be a lawyer um I was going to work in the city um none you know, I did a lot of work experience and none of them particularly sat well with me or me with them, <laughs> depending on who you ask. And so I applied for this PhD program and I was incredibly fortunate to get it. Um, and yeah, I just thought, well, I don't think I'll ever get another opportunity like this. So I moved, so I moved down to, to, to Kent. So I came, you know, from one end of the country down to the other. Uh, and, I, and I started there and, and I picked up this project from the Falklands because what I've been fascinated about is it wasn't until my master's program that I really began to do um, 20th century military history again in, in, in detail and I've looked at combat motivation and, and morale um, and motivations for fighting uh, in a comparison between land forces and the air forces uh, in, in during the second world war for Britain and then when it came to the developing a, a PhD proposal I thought well what's that like if you if this is your actual job you know if you're actually professional what's that like and I looked at some of the literature and I, and I thought well there's nothing really exploring that you know the Falklands fits in this sort of strange niche because you, in Britain you're out of national service so you've, you've moved away from that conscript that got you know a lot of people who go off to Korea and are in Cyprus and these sorts of things it's it's before the end of the Cold War so the, the Cold War mindset is still very much there you know you're, you're basically preparing to fight for 48 hours and then start throwing nuclear weapons around and it's for such distance it's and it's this, this completely unexpected enemy in an unexpected place and I thought well what's that like you know I, I want to know I want to explore what that was like for people who were there you know what was the human experience like how were people motivated why were they in the military and how was that transformed and challenged by what their experience in the Falklands might be because it's not something that anyone had ever prepared for or even expected and yeah and that's what they spent the next four years doing and uh it was one that I just spoke to some amazing people incredibly humbled by a lot of a lot of stories I, I, I people shared with me and I really drove it by the experience of the people who've been there so I, you know I looked at the history I looked at the historiography I, I pulled in some of the official records but it was really driven by the experiences of, of, of the people who've been there you know 
And so I learned a lot about military culture in particular um, and how that translates and the essentially the, the human experience of, of modern warfare. So I, I assume you, you did a lot of uh, oral histories with veterans. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I, I, you know, I would go out and find them, I, and I wrote to charities, and I, I and I wrote to, to to veterans groups, and I I'd, I'd go out and um, you know, I'd I looked into obviously I'd I'd you know look into what what people's experiences were and and, and you know, cross reference and all this stuff to make sure. But my my mentality was I'd try and say yes to as many people as I can, and I used the sound, established sound archives in places like National Art Museum, Imperial War Museum in particular, um, but also I wanted to generate my own because I wanted to ask my own specific questions about why you know why people were there and what they thought about how the Falklands did it. Because one of the other things I was really interested in is what it, what happened when people got back, because it, it, that's in, increasingly where, at the time I was doing it, one of the big influences on me was this idea about um, people were starting to talk a lot more about PTSD. Uh, in, and, and, and there was a lot of reference back to shell shock, which is something I'd looked at. I looked at social class and shell shock uh, as an undergraduate. People begin to talk about it again because of what had been happening in Iraq. Um, but also particularly of what happened in the 90s in the Balkans. That's when you sort of saw that delayed onset that was so familiar for so many people. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, Shay's book like, um, you know, uh, uh, Achilles in Vietnam. Um, right. And this, and this sort of stuff that, you know, um, a lot of the historical theory was coming in and talking about that and the impact of, on these things. And I want to sort of un unpack that, but also I want to understand it from just from a practical level, you know, how do you go back to peacetime soldiering after having been in intense war fighting? Demobilized and went home. But, you know, in the Falklands, some people stayed in for another, you know, 20 years for the rest of their careers and, and these sorts of things. And I was, I was fascinated by how those cultures are built and, and how they interact. So how far back was the previous deployment of, of that sort of size? Within Korea or something like that? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, it's the, it's, yeah, Korea. Right. Basically, the largest, yeah. Um, it's been a while. It's been a huge, huge amount of time. I mean, there's been yeah. no um, uh, aerial combat, really, air to air, -to -air combat of a, of a particular note. There's been, been some in, in Korea, but there's been nothing since that for the. So it's been the, a long time since a large number of people who served have returned home. Yeah. And what, you know, British society had to, had to deal with. Exactly. But even then, it was a really strange, it was, a, it was quite a small proportion of different components of the force so you know you right. within the army you know it was a few it was a handful of the battalions because there's still the vast majority of effort was was sat in germany you know basically staring across you know the inner german border uh, the, waiting for the third soviet shock army to come smashing through the the minden gap um you know and, and, and roll over everybody and you know for some people they, they spend their whole careers preparing to fight the russians they've gone off and spent 74 days in camp on campaign against the argentinians and then they came straight back into that some people you know the falklands defined their entire lives afterwards some people it was just a it was just a point on their, their career and it was just fascinating exploring people and exploring different people's responses to that um and yeah and as i say i couldn't have done it without people's willingness to to open up and and, and, and talk to me you know it's uh i was born in 77 and that's one of the first that's the first conflict I remember. I don't remember it, obviously. I was, you know, a, a small child, but I remember like hearing or seeing on the news. I remember like discussions of it. That was, you know, the first, you know, real kind of conflict of, of my life. And it's yeah. And I, I mean, I, I taught I'm, I taught some courses on it uh, when I was a, a, a assistant uh, lecturer when I was at Kent and, th and this sort of stuff. And it was people always tended to focus on the fighting, but there was so much in it that you could unpack as well. And you know, Lawrence Freeman's official history um, uh, had, had come out not that radically, you know, earlier before I actually started um, and in there you know he unpacks a lot of this stuff around the, the huge just like diplomatic effort that went in you know the diplomatic war 
um, you, you know, um, the, the way in which that was fought at the UN was, was absolutely key to victory, you know, to, to basically prevent the UN from building a consensus for a ceasefire. And then you've got the, the tensions in the United States as well, you know, between Kirkpatrick and Weinberger, and you've got, you know, uh, Reagan just sat in the middle, and then, you know, some of these outlandish ideas about reflagging a carrier, and all, and you know, all, yeah, all I remember things. that, yeah, yeah, right, but, yeah. but, but, wow. but also, but also not supporting the Argentinians who were this huge bulwark against communist expansion, you know, in 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 what was a pretty frosty period of the Cold War as well. So the Falklands seems like it's a war fought for tiny islands eight thousand miles away, but actually the global politics and the uh, significance and implications of it were, were, were huge and, and were, were, were far wider. And so, yeah, that was a really interesting thing to be able to unpack with, certainly when I, with, certainly when I was teaching it to students. So uh, with the, 20, uh, sorry, the 40th anniversary coming up, are we going to see this dissertation uh, come out as a book now? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, uh, especially because uh, I've not started yet. And then we start on the 2nd of April. No, look, I mean, um, there's elements of my dissertation I, I, I published. I published stuff on recruitment propaganda. Um, about how you know the image of the, the British military was sold uh, in the aftermath of, of 1963 and the end of national service in the run-up to the Falklands. A lot of my thesis was on reflection, not as strong as I could have made it, certainly. Um, and actually, I, I, I need to go back and I'd really need to, to tool it up and look at a whole host of different elements, I think, and particularly some of the more recent scholarship that's come out around combat and morale, I'd have to, you know, reevaluate and go into. And, and, and yeah, I mean... I, I'm really proud that I did it, but but at the same time, I feel like I can move on into some other exciting scholarship now as well, um, uh, and look at that. But uh, yeah, hey, never say never, right? Eh? Right. Well, before we we take our our faux break, um, one of the really interesting things that that you get to do is um, you oversee museum acquisitions, and you know. To be completely honest, you know, I have no idea how that works. I think, you know, I always assumed that people donated things to you. But then when I was looking at your, your, you know, your profile online, you're talking about getting grants to purchase items. How does museum acquisition work? I mean, do people contact you? Do you guys go to a lot of auctions? How does that whole world function? So it works in a variety of ways. Um, I've been really lucky, both both here at the RF Museum, but also at the at the National Army Museum, um, where I was previously. We we had funds set aside to help enable us to, to make acquisitions, so we could go to auctions. Um, you know, a lot of museums aren't in that aren't in that fortunate position, but we it really depends on the institution. So we get a lot through donation. We get a lot of really kind offers of people from people's family members, um, from people themselves who are, you know, everyone's got a shoebox full of stuff in the attic, it seems, or an MFO box or whatever. And, you know, we get offered donations too. Um, but there are certain things where what we're always trying to do is make sure our, our collections are, are relevant and they continue to, to point to what it is the stories we're trying to tell. So, I mean, just an example. So the RF Museum has uh, more than a million objects in its collection. 75% of that is dedicated to the Second World War. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you, I mean, about less than 5% of its history. Uh, so there's these huge bits about it. And, you know, we have all these discussions here in the UK about, you know, how, how can we drive scholarship? You know, what, where can we encourage scholarship into new fields? Like, where's the, where's the next bits we can understand? And museums definitely have a part to play in that, because if we can both highlight the collections we've got, but also grow them and centralize them and bring them together, we can become the hubs of scholarship. We become the center of these, some of these intellectual ecosystems that, that spring up, and we can help drive and foster some of these developments into these, I won't use the word forgotten because it's, it triggers some people, but you know, these, these lesser known areas of, of, of history for sure. But yeah, so sometimes it's, it, you know, you, you are reliant on donations and some people are incredibly generous. You know, when I was at the National Art Museum, someone donated us a Victoria Cross. I mean, oh, wow. that, yeah. that, is a, that, that is a house. 
I mean, that is right. that is a house essentially. Yeah. Um, it's 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 really weird because a lot of our stuff we, we we have to put a financial value on our collections for our auditors and our insurance, etc. But you know, this stuff is priceless. Right. <laughs> Let's be serious. It, it it you know it's unique and it's priceless. So it's a bit of this weird dichotomy. But when we do acquisitions, yeah, so we're we're, we're constantly going out and looking, and, and it can be anything. It could be letters, diaries, photographs, posters, medals, aircraft, firearms, uniforms you know, whatever we do. I mean, I've been really lucky. I've, I've, I've been able to, you know, again, we joke about Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones always acquired things in the most legally dubious ways. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that should never be a model for how things end up in, you know, you know, I mean, it's a classic sort of gift, you know, uh, you know, you know, it, it, it belongs in a museum. It's a classic sort of rallying cry, yeah, but, you know, yeah, yeah but, but, but not if you've stolen it, Indy. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's not how it works. Everything is, is acquired in an ethical and legally uh, sound way. But um, no, so what's amazing is occasionally we, we get offered things where people have just found them at the bottom of, of, of trunks in attics or, or stuff like that. And occasionally we, we move at auction for really high profile things. So uh, at the National Army Museum, I, I bought the coat that Duke of Wellington was wearing at the Battle of Waterloo. That was, wow. that was, a, that was a stressful day. Uh, I I, you know, I went in the auction, I had my little paddle and I held it up and, you know, all this sort of stuff. You um, had like a limit? What, what restrictions yeah, did you so have? Because we're publicly funded. Uh, because we're, we're public fund institutions, the way all of our sign-off works is we, we, we have a limit. It's not just, you know, go in and get it. We, we have a pre-agreed limit on how much we can bid for. And occasionally I've gone into a room and been blown out of the water, you know, straight away. The bidding has opened on a commission bid higher than I've got enough money for, which one I basically just turn around and or I sometimes stay at my own personal interest. But sometimes I will just have to just turn around and walk off. Um, but others, yeah, we go in. And so it, it can... Um, Borrow a it becomes squeaky bum time uh, as you're getting closer and closer to the top of your uh, your limit. But you, you you obviously you really want this stuff, and you know it's uh, I, you know I wouldn't I've been successful in some really great stuff. So um, that there were the 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 robes worn by Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, wow. I, I acquired those as well for the museum. You're you you are freaking me out, man. That is awesome. That, that is, is awesome. so cool. How I mean, a how do these things ever even? come up i mean who who had like who had those robes right um, so they were so the robes were um so the robes were basically they were they were sort of in three parts there was the agal which goes across the top right uh there was the kefir which is the essentially the sort of you know the, the headscarf that can double up and wrap around and all this sort of stuff and then there were the robes and they were they were sort of different lots and the the kefir and the had and the agal were um from the from an artist that he he'd gone to be he'd gone to model for for a sculpture and he and Lawrence had, had had turned up in his normal in his in normal gear, and she said, "No, no, no, come back as Lawrence of Arabia because that's why you're famous." Uh, and and so he did. Um, but then he left them there. Uh, and then the robes again, the robes he'd um, the robes he'd given uh, as a gift when he was air, when he was aircraftman Shaw in the RAF right. when he was you right. know going on this assumed name, uh, he'd given the robes to to a friend of his, um, and the, actually the mother of a friend of his, and said, "Oh, you know, you can you can cut these up and." because it was silk you can cut these up and make a dress if you like uh and so she'd actually locked all of the sleeves off before her son said you know good god oh, what god. are you what, what are you doing um and then it was reattached and then you know the 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 the, the, the stuff had, had had stayed in the family and you know that there are there are letters talking about it we do a lot obviously the, the provenance check and goes with it you know we don't just buy any of this stuff you know just right. respect. Yeah, it's got good provenance right yeah exactly yeah. and we do and we spend a lot of time looking into that to to make sure and we compare multiple sources and all this sort of stuff but yeah so you know when those things come up you, you've got to move and um his dagger that we got as well is john beer that had actually already been sold uh, but it had been sold to an overseas buyer and so in the in the uk and uk law 
the things about standing national heritage, you can apply for a heritage bar, um, an export bar put on these things. They can't leave the country, which basically gives you a set amount of time to see if you can raise the money to oh, yeah. essentially you give the money back to the person who bought it, but they don't get the item. Uh, and they put that on their export bar. And yeah, I was able to use in, um, with, with, with some really generous support from the National Heritage Memorial Fund, um, a grant making body charity here in the UK. I was able to raise the money to get the, the, the John Beer too. And, you know, and that's the thing that in the, in the movie, again, coming back to the movies, yeah. that's the thing in the movie that he gets given. You know, th th that's the symbol of his Arabification, if you will, you know, his acceptance and integration into the, 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 the part. And yeah, in real life, remember the was... scene where he's, he's dancing around by himself, yeah. right? And he's looking at his reflection in the blade. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so all of that is very much so the, the legend attached to it. And, and, the, and that's why that's why museums are great, because you're like, you've seen that. Look at this. And people yeah. came in and were like, I can't believe you've got props from the film. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> not the real thing. This is, you know, this is the real this is the real thing. And this is the yeah. And, and that would just blow people's minds. And that is incredible. The opportunity is, to do yeah. that and see people, you know, uh, I'm I've the utmost respect for my colleagues who who write amazing scholarship and 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 you know I read the journal articles they put out and they're amazing but for me you know one because I can't write as well as they can but two I also have the opportunity to just to engage so many different people uh just at a different level and a different level of excitement and I yeah I love that that's what you know the inner the inner kid in me love doing and that's what I get to continue to do as an adult so yeah, that, Brian, that we, is, Brian, we could stop right here. And I was going to say, we could just stop I, I right could, here. I, I'm good. I'm really, I'm, I'm really good. envious. Uh, I'm really envious oh my gosh. of, of what, what you get to do. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I spend an hour a day on eBay looking, looking for stuff and to, you know, be able to do that professionally. Quick question. Is there something that is currently in private hands that you have just been trying to get for either the Army Museum or the RAF that somebody just won't let go of? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah um i can't i can't i can't tell you what they are because it might yeah. it, it might jack the price up if people know gotcha, how much gotcha. I want them. all right yeah uh, so there but, are these like so you just like occasionally like oh i think i'll reach back out to so and so and see if she's ready to let it go yeah okay yeah, yeah. Uh, and look hey sometimes we're as i say sometimes we're not successful on some of this stuff but occasionally when when people see that we're out there and people see that we're talking about it they they sometimes come to us um and yeah again we're, we we get we're really lucky we have amazing offers um, and people are very generous. Um, but also, as I say, we, we have the ability to move on certain things ourselves. Yeah. But what, what's also really great though, is when we can work with the, and I've always found when you can work directly with the military. I mean, Bravo November is a great example where the RF right. been really, really kind and supportive. Um, when I was at the army, you know, um, when I was at the army museum, uh, <laughs> I asked the, uh, the, the British major general who was in command of what we called Op Shader, which was the, um, the, the mission in, uh, against ISIS um, and, and, and the guys who are out there training the Iraqis. And I said, look, you know, it's really important that we reflect the contemporary development of what's going on. You know, is there anything you can do to help? And he fired off a couple of emails um, and then, uh, you know, a box turned up just out, you know, out of the blue, a box turned off on the back of a truck uh, one morning in work. I opened it up and inside, you know, there's a flag signed by all the guys who were out there. Um, there was some of the, the, the kit they'd been using to train them. I mean, I did open it. And also at the same time, there was a, a mortar round in the bottom of it and that you know scared the crap out of me yeah. uh so i had to get the um luckily luckily one of our security guys was a uh, was ex-eod <laughs> so he could come in and he just poked his head and went nah it's all right that's, that's fine yeah. <laughs> yeah that's and, and it turned out it was one of the training things they buried in the sand to help them try and find it in there was also a door off a truck an armored door off a truck that had been subject to a mine strike and the driver had survived and there was a picture of him 
Um, and it basically just represents, you know, that, that sort of stuff is, it's not massively like headline, you know, it's not associated with famous people or, or famous events, but it's really key to what the day-to-day -day is and what the yeah. people were doing. That connection. Um, yeah. And it's a connection. And, and so you can show that, but it, you know, that's just in, in times of war. But one of the funniest ones I had is um, I did a big project before I left the army museum. I, I, I wrote a book and I did an exhibition about the British army in Germany since right. 1945. So through the cold war and then the supposed end of history afterwards and building up to the deployments and, you know, suddenly the British army, the Rhine seems like a good idea again. <laughs> history doesn't rhyme. It, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. I was talking to the guy again. And the way I drove that project was I spoke to people who were there and I said, hey, look, you know, if you were doing an exhibition, what would you expect to see in it? What would be the thing that you would see? You know, yeah, you know, you worked on the hardware, you worked on Chieftain or you worked on Challenger or, or, or whatever. Um, what would you expect to see? And then they told me about things like, um, so there was this unit uh, called Socksmith. They were Soviet liaison mission. They used to drive around West Germany, the British sector, and um, try and basically be gathering intelligence. And they were quasi, it was diplomatic, they had diplomatic status. So you could box them in, but you couldn't do anything about them. And there was a British one operating in East Germany as well. But everyone got given these little cards that said, you know, this is a number plate. Um, if you see them, try and stop them or call Hereford, the police, the military police, and we'll come and get them and that sort of stuff. So I got one of those. Um, guys told me about this thing called a yellow handbag. So obviously, you know, beer in the army is a big thing. Um, and in Germany, beer is brilliant. And all because obviously, because the way that, you know, the way the culture is, all the different towns have their own brewery. You know, it's not just like right. mass produced stuff. They all have their own breweries. And in one of the towns, a big center of the British deployment was called Hereford. And so they had Hereford pills, and it came in a yellow case. You buy a yellow case of it and the British troops would pick it up uh, and it fit perfectly in the outside storage bin of a chieftain. Um, but it was called, and, but they nicknamed it a yellow handbag. You know, people said, you've got to get a yellow handbag, you've got to get a yellow handbag. And so I joined a few veterans groups and I was doing this and I found one on Facebook and I just wrote to the guy and said, look, hey, you know, would you mind, would you mind sending that to me so I can put it in my exhibition? And, and he said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and oh, he did. Great. And it was great. I went to the uh, I went to the Hereford Brewery purely in the name of research, of course. <laughs> you have, no, you have to make sure it's it, noted. It's worthy, noted. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, <laughs> they still talk. They still talked about how important the army were for them as customers. And you know, bear in mind how controversial the British deployment to Iraq was, both both in the UK but also it, particularly in Germany. And the army that deploys to Iraq in two thousand three comes out of Germany. The, the town of Hereford threw this huge welcome back parade when their units came home. You know, they had basically adopted the the British units, the Germans. Right. Which again, when you go back to 1945, is you think about how that relationship Funny. transformed is is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, it's that real. Um, a, a German general described to me as as moving from foe to friend, um, and yeah. it's perfect. And that ended up being the title of the exhibition because it was just such a perfect summary of that of that whole period. Hey, we need to take a break. Hey everyone, Military Historians of People 2 wants to push two important things with our listeners. First, we don't get any compensation from the University Press of Kansas. The wonderful folks out there in Lawrence kindly promote our podcast on their social media feeds, and we're really grateful for that. In return, we encourage you to check out the University Press of Kansas and its great list, including many military history titles and series such as Modern War Studies, which I am honored to serve as series editor. But we don't want to just push the University Press of Kansas. Brian and I encourage you to check out the amazing books and journals offered by the University Press community. Whether it's North Carolina, Texas A&M, Cornell, NYU, Cambridge, Oxford, whatever, visit their websites, check out the wonderful scholarship these and other presses produce each year. If you see something you like, 
If you can buy it directly from the press website, all the better. And in that same vein, as a non-monetized podcast, we rely on our listeners to help us get the word out about military historians or people too. So please retweet, repost, share on all your social media feeds, our podcast and pods like Bowen Blade, Khaki Malarkey, ThePeel.News, and any others that you listen to. You are such an important part of all of us reaching our listeners. So thank you for your support. Please share us, keep listening, and enjoy today's show. How often do you work with with traditional academics? Do you know? Do you contract stuff out? You know, what what is what is that like? What kind of projects you know do you bring those two communities together with? So, so that's so that's a really great question, uh, and it's something that I'm really passionate about. So actually, you know, okay. here at the so here at the RF Museum, and one of the reasons I took one of the reasons I took this job, having had seven wonderful years at the National Army Museum, one of the reasons I took this job was I, I could be head of collections and research. So it was sort of like this fantastic opportunity for me to combine my love of the stuff, but then also continue to engage with the academic community and, and also just hang out with my mates um, on a professional basis. <laughs> um, but you know, it's so it, what's always been really great is that um, I'm really conscious that here in here in museums we sort of we sort of occupy the space between, you know, truth, myth, memory, outright falsehood. And, and you know, we, we sort of have to sit in the middle of all of that because, you know, you, you can't, because we're judged on like the number of people we bring in and stuff like that, you know, you can't basically say, hey, come, learn an ex- come to an exhibition about the First World War. By the way, everything you know about it is wrong. You're moron. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you know you, you can't you can't do that so at times you know you've got to say to people you know you've got to you've got to ease them in and you know you talk about and, and that's why obviously film and and, doc, and, and stuff yeah like you that gotta is. you gotta play to the the narrative a little bit right i mean you, you kind of have yeah, to you, you can the world war ii museum rob, rob said the same thing about the national yeah. world war ii museum in new orleans that they you know the people coming there They've they've kind of bought into the greatest generation mythology. They they've they've seen Tom Hanks win World War II, right? Stuff like that, and so they and disparage every British person in the, on the way. Well, it, right. Well, that that was just a bonus. You got to kind of you can't just shut that down, right? Otherwise, no, they're not no. going to come in the door. No, but also, like, let's, we need to work in partnership with that. You know, that stuff gets people excited, and that stuff gets people interested. You know, there are phenomenal documentaries, and there's phenomenal movies out there. But you know, why, one of the reasons I grew up loving planes is a because of my grandfather. I remember seeing Top Gun when I was like seven. That shit's cool. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. And and so you can build on that and say, you know, even even for for a British person and, and looking at looking at American kit, you know, you can say that there's this sort of stuff, and 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 this is where you can begin to learn some of the truth behind these stories, and and that sort of and, and but and then you can begin to to challenge people, and you've got to make this stuff accessible because you know the the average person who comes into a museum, you know it. Is not an expert. The academic, you know, in the academic community, you know, we we tend to sometimes think that everybody knows the same things that we do, and the stuff that we instantly can reel off is is just unknown to certain people. Yeah. So this is where you have to, to to work with this stuff and and, and bring them in, and, and this is where you can build really effective stuff. And and I thought Rob Rob talked about it so well in, in the, the the pod you guys did with him. You, once they're in, 
that's when you can start to talk to them. Yeah. So instead right. of just sort of walling them off, and then the great thing is that's when you can bring academics in. And one of the things I really like doing at National Art Museum is, you know, we, we hosted a lot of conferences um, about a lot of different topics and we brought scholars in and we brought, you know, really cutting edge research. We did a great one about, um, we, called war, we called it War Without End, which is essentially the, after, the ongoing aftermath of the First World War, right. basically telling people, you know, the, the, the armistice didn't end the war and it still came. Right. And we had people come in from, you know, the belligerents, you know, some of the smaller countries, Turkey, Poland, etc., all to talk about this stuff going on. And um, this was actually during COVID as well. So we did it as a virtual conference. And, you know, we could fit 120 people in our conference hall at the National Army Museum. We've got more than 1,300 tuning in to watch this conference. Wow. Which, which was amazing. And what we were doing is we were basically being a vehicle for, you know, excellent good scholarship and a big public audience and being a platform and 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 that's what i think museums should be doing you know we can accept that sometimes we don't know everything you know there's right. only so many people on the staff and like in like in in all faculties you know people have specific knowledge um about particular things and they have knowledge gaps about other things and and that's true of museum faculty uh, staffs as well but it's no problem because you can find someone who can do that and I have to say, uh, at the National Art Museum, uh, my, my colleague Nicola, who worked there, she's, she's head of public programming. She is amazing. She was absolutely amazing at finding brilliant, brilliant speakers and a real mix of early career researchers, established scholars, new authors, new books, marrying up with anniversaries where there might be more interesting stuff anyway. And she built this incredible program that was just getting, you know, close on 100 people a day um, coming in and sitting in a lecture theatre. But multiple hundreds of people, when we stream, began streaming it online, um, and being a venue for doing that is brilliant. Now, the more in-depth scholarship studies we do as well. So, you know, at, at NAM we had, um, we, had we, we, we sponsored junior research fellowships. Um, again, we hosted conferences to give people an opportunity to speak in an academic to academic peers, and you know, have that sort of network exchange as well. Obviously, gave them a platform to to promote themselves too. Um, and we, we had an academic advisory panel as well, who we would work with directly and say, look, you know, we're working on this. Um, you know, what's the key, what's the latest research and scholarship? Let's make sure we're interpreting it for our audience, because we know what our audience is going to respond to the best. And that's all of our audiences. Um, but, you know, tell us what we're, you know, so we're not just regurgitating Alan Clark or something like that, you know. So, you know, Jonathan Boff was on that. Amy was on that. Um, so it was, again, that was a lot of fun because I just got to talk history with my friends. Uh, but we could also bring in different perspectives too, as well as have a, you know, an opportunity to advocate amongst the, the actual professional military community as well. So they understood what we were doing. So they would go out and tell people that uh, we were also, you know, we, we were worth visiting and we were good and, <laughs> and this stuff. So, you know, you're sort of we'll building this together and, and you learn a huge amount from that. And so, yeah, working with these, these, these people who, just, who, who write just incredible scholarship, but also being able to gateway them into collections they might not have used before um is really exciting too um and it's something that i love doing uh, and it's something i'm really keen to you know as i as i work up and build more and more in this in the in the job here at the IF museum it's something i want to do as well i really want to position us as a as a hub of 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 of, of that sort of intellectual ecosystem uh for the study of not, not just air power i mean air power you can define air power however you want but it's the social cult social history cultural history the opportunity to be multidisciplinary is massive here you know you, you can do all sorts of things it's engineering um in fact my, my uh the museum's historian uh harry rafael has, has done an amazing job in getting funding for a uh, a collaborative phd in suspended objects uh which is all about engineering and you know that's not something that i know anything about i mean i look yeah. at some of the suspended stuff we've got and i get 
you know, it literally keeps me awake at night, wondering what's going to happen you know, in case that stuff comes out. How is that staying yeah. up there? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, <laughs> Will it still be a, there in the morning? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got a lightning doing this party trick of just basically going straight up. Um, and it's above a, you know, it's, it's, it's above a, a York and a, uh, and a Hastings that, um, you know, a Hastings that serves in the Berlin airlift and this sort of thing. So I'm incredibly nervous about it. Um, in our National Cold War hangar, it's also quite close to a Vulcan that flew in the, in the Falklands as well. So, you know, I'm really worried that comes down and damages some historically valuable stuff, priceless stuff. But yeah, so he's, he's launched that. So we have these wonderful multidisciplinary options that I think in a museum, which, yeah, I'm really excited. There's increasingly a trend towards looking out and, and bringing knowledge in and sharing knowledge too. Um, and as I say, using us, using our platform to, to get people, I mean, people are people are excited about this. Yeah, in in the UK, we're incredibly lucky with how much people like history, and particularly oh, yeah. how much people like military history. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, we are incredibly lucky uh, in the environment that we work in, and so yeah, so it's just a huge it, amount of fun. The relationship between you know the Imperial War Museum system, the Army Museum, the RAF. And I'm not sure what others you know are out there in the UK, but how 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 do they all work together? I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm assuming they do but I'm sure there's also some spirited competition. Yeah, there is. Um, so, so essentially, so each- and Not, not just are, their rugby teams, you know, the rugby <laughs> field that they have, right? So each, of the, so each of the service museums has its own national museum. So there's the National Army Museum, which is in Chelsea in West London. There's the National Museum of the Royal Navy, which is centered in the Portsmouth dockyard, Portsmouth, but has right. sites scattered right across the UK, including in, in, um, uh, in Northern Ireland as well. Um, and uh, then there's the- RF Museum, the National you know, National Museum of the RF, which are well, site both here in, in, in North London, but also in uh, in the Midlands in uh, in Cosford. So those are the, the National Service Museums. And then alongside that, there are, is the Imperial War Museum, and the Imperial War Museum, obviously founded in formally in 1917, as a memorial to to the First World War, whilst it was still going on, um, and then essentially evolved throughout there to to document the the role of the of the British peoples in in conflict and history. Then of course you've got all the regimental and corps museums. Uh, that speak to the specific tribal uh, nature of the of the British Army uh, in particular. You know, it's um, you know, it, they they all have their own regimental museums. Some of them are independent organisations, civilian organisations. Some of them are still inside the wire and various camps. Some of them are are run by majors and other regimental officers. They're all done in slightly different ways. Um, and they're again they're spread right across the UK. Um, you know, and and a lot of those are cap badges that don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, right. or bring progressively rolled into everything else um, and so and then you've got private military museums on top of all of that as well and then you've got civic aviation museums or that've got military collections in so yeah it's a bit of a it's a congested picture um, and at times around certain things you know if you think about it in this way you know if one percent of material culture from a conflict survives um, and if you look at, say, the First World War, where the British Army is the largest ever been, 3.8 million men in uniform in 19, and men and women in uniform in 1918. Um, so 1% of that survived, say. Then you go something like 2010, um, the British Army is 120,000 people. You're looking at a much, much smaller percentage of material that is available to tell the stories about this. And again, having talked about how much I love the stuff, being in a museum where you don't have stuff, is virtually impossible. And that can be some of the weaknesses, actually. Right. You know, people come to the museum to see stuff. They don't come to read books and journal articles yeah. on the walls. They, they might come and listen to a lecture, and that's what your public program is for, and that's a central part of any museum. But they come to actually see the stuff and be inspired by the, the, the connection to the, to the events in which you're talking about.
Um, so if you don't have that, it can be quite challenging. So yeah, navigating that and, and people competing. Um, the, the IWM ran a fantastic project about Afghanistan, especially the drawdown from Afghanistan to the extent that I couldn't go because they'd already sewed everything up. And in fact, I think my request to go to Camp Bastion is still, is still pending somewhere, somewhere in the bowels <laughs> of the MOD. And it'll probably uh, come through and it'll be like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that went in 2014. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, we don't, but, and also because a lot of us are, are predominantly civilian organizations, we've close connections, we've close working relationships, but because we're not in uniform in the same way as, um, as you know, uh, the, the Marine Corps Museum and that sort of stuff, you know, we, um, or the, uh, the Australian War Memorial uh, right. in Canberra, which is obviously part of their Department of Veterans Affairs. So they've, uh, you know, it's, it's all sort of centralized in that way. We don't have the ability to basically field collect in the same sort of way as some of those people. The Australians do it really well, uh, actually. And, you know, they will basically, you know, they, something could happen. They could literally say, right, you've just done this thing. All your kit comes to the museum. And, you know, here's a new load, essentially. Okay. Ours, 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 we've got to chase stuff down. Um, um, and so occasionally we sort of tend to operate on a, on a system where we, we will try and get one of everything with the assumption that down the line, we might get something which has got a really great um, story or a name, particularly a named person attached to it. You know, this was worn by private blogs or whatever. And then we look to replace the one that we've got that is might have just come straight out of the stores or something. Uh, the Virtus body armor, the army wears, is, is increasingly wearing now. You know, I couldn't get that out of the army because obviously they needed it um, and they didn't have enough to go around. So I ended up going direct to the manufacturer who, who got me a couple of sets. And at the time I had more kit than some of the soldiers who were coming to visit the National Army Museum because I got given all of it. Yeah, um, they, they were, they were like, I, I never had that. I never seen that. Yeah, what yeah, is that? Were, we didn't have that. Or they, were, or they were complaining about how bad it was. Um, anyway, oh, but in itself, that, that in itself is an interesting story. So, and if you don't have the stuff, you can't talk about it. So, you know, in my experience and that of my, my colleagues, what we've always found is that the people are interested in the history, but they're also really interested in the contemporary and what's happening and how that sort of influence and how it's either changed or how there's continuity. Um, you know, it, it helps ground them. Um, and so people always like to, to see that. So I think gone are the, gone are the days where you, you might just not talk about what's, what's happening now. Yeah. Um, you know, you've you got to try and represent it. Although I do laugh. I mean, I love the Musée de l'Armée in Envalide in Paris. It's, it's phenomenal. Their collection is, is, is beautiful. But it, it always makes me laugh. Their contemporary department ends in 1945. <laughs> As a, you know, someone who, you know, I'm a, I am a contemporary historian because, you know, I, I do op-pit op, op in the airlift out of Kabul and stuff like that. You know, I'm interested in what's happening right now. Um, but yeah, so the contemporary department ends in 1945. I just find it hilarious. Brian, we should probably move into rapid fire. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I have uh... a question, a very important question I want to ask Peter before we do so. Um, Six Nations, what's your assessment? I mean, it's not going great from an English perspective. Yep. I think if you're... I think if you're, you're French, you're, uh, it's, well, I don't know what the French for squeaky bum time is, but Friday is going to be, uh, Saturday night is going to yeah. be interested in Paris. But that, that last match, though, was, was spirited, right? I mean, that was really... The, the England game? Yeah. Yeah, look, and, you know, and I love the game, and, and rugby teaches you a huge amount about life and everything else. But, uh, you know, it was definitely a red card. There's nothing, you know, not yeah. going not yeah. to contest that call. But the performance they put in afterwards was amazing. I mean... Yeah, it was um, really something. Not, I've not seen England play like that in a long time. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it always sounds a bit twee to say, oh, well, you know, you could take a lot from the defeat, but I think genuinely they can. Uh, and it showed a fire and a, and a passion. And, um, and you could feel it in the crowd. You could literally hear it, it, it coming through, even coming through the television. So, yeah, I think uh, France, um, 
Stade de France and uh, eight o'clock Saturday night is going to be uh, going to be an interesting. Well, they one, look good. They, Gosh, they just look, like last time. They look they look so good. They they play they play rugby in the most beautiful way. Yeah, um, and they make it look so easy. Um, but you can rattle them to borrow, <laughs> to borrow a famous English phrase. They don't like it up them. So if you can <laughs> if you can start. If you can, you know, if you if you can, you know, if you can start hitting them pretty hard and you start destabilizing them a bit and you make them a bit nervous, then then that's when you can. It's all about momentums and, and, and shifts, and that's when you can. Be, and more importantly, you keep the scoreboard ticking over. You begin to to plant get those little gremlins going. Right. That's, that's, so that's how so they, if if they could uh, relegate Italy, who who would you bring up to make like the six? See, this is contentious. I wouldn't relegate Italy. Really? Yeah, I wouldn't. I think. The Italians get a bit of a bum rap. Um, they suffer a lot of losses. They're either they're either competitive and then a couple of scores distort the overall picture of the game, or they don't really turn up. But they're just shambolic. I mean, yeah, sometimes they are. Just, but then, oh. but then there there is no competing case. I mean, you could take Italy out and put, you know, Georgia or, or Romania in again. Yeah, proud rugby, proud rugby nations. Um, Romania used to be a rugby powerhouse when uh, right. it was basically basically the army. <laughs> <laughs> the rugby team in the Cold War. That'd be a fascinating history to write, actually. But they they go this they they would go the same way. You know, they 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 bring as much passion to it. They bring as much you know effort, but they still have the same results. I would think, really, and, unless they go back to five, I wouldn't see the point in just swapping Italy out for someone else. Um, and that'd be hard to do. I was being half facetious, but but I no, mean, no, that'd, be, that'd be tough to do. It's something that gets talked about a lot. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's something that gets talked about every year. There is no as as with a lot of things, there is no right answer. There's maybe just a a less wrong one and for me you know i still got i've still got the dream of uh, of watching a six nations game in rome so uh until nice. un, un, until i've done until i've had one of those glorious springtime days in uh late february or early march in rome yeah. uh, with, with my dad keep uh, real quick um, I've, t- I've told this story before on the pod but because because you'll appreciate it probably more than others but uh on our delayed honeymoon now now over 20 years ago uh jennifer and i you know we went to london and messed around and whatnot, but we, I made her go out with me to Twickenham to see uh, England play Scotland and, and, you know, a supposed friendly, Um, (laughs) but it it was one of the coolest sporting events I've ever been to in my life. And and she'll say the same thing, the train ride out there with everybody on the train, um, you know, walking from the station to the stadium through the village, you know, and everything. And, and then of course, just the, the atmosphere and everything of the game itself was just uh, really incredible. And one of the few ties that I still own is my Six Nations tie that I got there at the, that's at great. the gift shot at Twickenham. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. I used to. That's um, great. I played it. I played at Twickenham. I played at Twickenham. Really? Before. Yeah. I, when I was uh, when I was playing mini rugby, uh, my yeah. club got to play. You know, the kids how play now. The kids play on the pitch. Yeah. So I got to do that. So that was pretty amazing. Wow! How uh, cool. I played before an England France game in the Six Nations actually. Oh wow. And that was great. But I mean, I used to go with my dad. Um, my dad stewarded there for a while. So my, my dad would be like one of the one of the guys in the high of his jacket who would, you know, basically show people their seats, but pretty much just get to watch the game. So he, he got to 2015, you know, he watched the World Cup final and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, pretty, oh, cool. pretty great for him. Twickenham for me was, it wasn't until I lived in central London as a, as a, as a, as a grown up, um, <laughs> I used to get the train out because I always used to drive in with my dad from where we lived in, in Buckinghamshire, we'd drive in. Right. There's a pub called the Royal Oak in Arworth, and it's just up the river from, uh, from, from Twickenham. And we'd stop in there. My dad would always know someone, always. 
always be one of my dad's either like my like my godfather would be in there or like one of my dad's rugby friends from when he played would be in there or someone he knew from work or something and yeah it was just and then you'd all walk down together and you as you get closer and closer the crowds get thicker and thicker and the noise gets bigger yeah. and bigger it's a great yeah. atmosphere it's brilliant it's, it's um, really a unique, unique place yeah um yeah it is unique it is it's yeah. it's pretty special um I have to say, I, heard, well, I was listening to, uh, to, to Boff's uh, on this. Boff always kept it quiet from me that he'd been in Sydney in 2003. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I watched that, I watched that at home. Um, uh, and uh, it's quite low ceilings in my parents' uh, sitting room. And there's still a dent where uh, I jumped up and put your fist up. Yeah. <laughs> gave it a bit of a whack. Uh, but yeah, that was, a, that, that was a pretty amazing day as well. So That's cool. Well, let's, let's do our, our rapid fire thing, Brian. Yeah. Okay, uh, right. you've listened to these, Peter, so you know what's coming up. We're, we'll ask you a series of questions. We'll switch off. And uh, you know, for you, you know, we've, we've tweaked it for you a little bit, but there'll be some of the, the, the standards. So hopefully you're half prepared. I don't see yeah, a lot of yeah. books around you. So I don't know if you're going to be able to cheat and look at your bookshelves. To... Um, I, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got a bookshelf here. I've got a bookshelf over there. Yeah, okay, um, so they're all in front. I've closed, so, yeah, I've closed, so I've can... closed the blinds behind me so you weren't distracted by the, the beautiful view of the road. All right, Brian, we'll start. Let's do it. All right, best work of history you've read recently? Philip Taylor's uh, Munitions of the Mind. I reread it recently. Um, okay, Philip Taylor. A, yeah, he was a absolute. He just he still has the best definition of propaganda I've ever I've ever seen. Um, elusive, um, put down. Um, uh, yeah, and he was great. He just, he, he just wrote in the most phenomenal way that I wish I could do. <laughs> all right. Well, I have students all the time who want to talk about propaganda, so now I've got a new book to, uh, to, to put them on. Okay, best non-history book you've read recently? I mean, I, I tend to read a lot, of, uh, a lot of fiction if I'm not going to read actual history books. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I read a lot of, um, I read a lot of like, mystery and crime novels, uh, historical fiction in particular. Um, the uh, I don't even know the, the Bernie Gunter series. That's uh, it's all basically he's like your classic anti-hero. Luke McCallan wrote a good has written a good set again featuring a, a, another guy. Um, um, and uh, the Otto Fishers by um, oh, what's McDermott's first name? Jim McDermott. They're quite good too. So yeah, I've been reading a, a, a lot of that stuff. But obviously, you know, I read the Carré too. I mean, who doesn't like a bit of the Carré in particular? Sure. Yeah. Uh, slightly obsessed with I'm, I'm obsessed with Cold War Cold War Berlin. Oh yeah, um, of right. Okay, uh, what do you what are you binge watching? Uh, so binge watching. So uh, I'm I'm about I've got about 20 minutes to go of having rewatched the entire series, entire all the seasons of Friday Night Lights. Oh wow! Oh, okay. interesting. What what drew yeah. you to that? I mean, I love it. I just always have. I mean, I like I like football anyway. Dude, I lived um, it. I grew up in Texas. I lived it. I lived it. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> and it's I, pretty I dang the, accurate. Unfortunately, well, I read the book. I read the the um the book. By, the book's by, great. The book is the superb. Yeah. So yeah. I, I read the book and I saw the old Billy Bob Thornton movie. Yep. And then and then when the series came out, I started watching it. And yeah, and then it's it's just come on um on one of the streaming services here in the UK again, having been on um I think it was either on Amazon or Hulu or something like that. Right. So it, it wasn't available. So I I definitely I, I jumped in and took the opportunity because. Uh, I was watching the Americans and they got moved on the streaming service to one I don't have. So I've uh, lost, I've lost the chance to watch that. So, yeah, I mean, so I've been watching Friday Night Lights again, cause you know, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. So. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. That is amazing. Um, what music are you listening to? What have you, what have you downloaded? What are you streaming? Oh, I mean, I've got, so I've got terrible taste in music. Uh, it's gotta be said. Um, we welcome that. So uh, I listen to a lot of, uh, I listen to a lot of punk 
uh, but but that varies from you know more classic clash to more contemporary pop punk stuff. Um, but it's a lot of Fallout. I love Fallout Boy. Um, yeah. I just okay. I, yeah. Yep. There's a lot of it's all it's all combination of like nostalgia, but also just like you know that type of thing. Uh, Blink One Eight Two again, brilliant. Um, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I, I find like listening to podcasts and particularly listening to like historians talk about things on, on the various historical podcasts actually it really inspires me when I'm going to go in and do some research or do some writing or stuff like yeah. that. So, so I, I listen to those and I, I've been listening to, um, there's a new one out uh, about, the, um, about the disinformation war in Ukraine that's just come out. That's really good. There was a brilliant one called by uh, Gable Gatehouse about um, essentially the run up to uh, the Jan 6. Yeah. Riot oh, as yeah. well. Um, that's a really, a really good one. Um, uh, and there's also a good one called uh, about uh, called Wild Things about Seafried and Roy, which is oh yeah, yeah. For this, this, you know, the, the most from a British perspective, the, the, the greatest distillation of Americana you can imagine. Yeah, you know, yeah. white tigers in and 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 rhinestones in Vegas. I mean, yeah. What's so that, that's like? a, right. yeah, yeah, and and you know, immigrants. Uh, you know, is the, the American dream, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, these two guys who, who came out of, of you know, who, there's some there's some a lot of contradictory backstories and stuff going on in some of this. Yeah. That in itself is fascinating, but some of the wildest, outlandish theories that are put out there, some of these proto conspiracy theories and stuff. So, I mean, obviously, all about the the, the tragic tragic accident when he was attacked, but just how it was built and how they built their show and and how they did it and you know some of the risks they took just to get it done and some of the challenges. They, I've I've been really enjoying listening to that. Yeah, that's been really good too. Well, I know what you mean about your uh, nostalgic with music. I just got I just got one of the Laws albums on vinyl. I'm right yeah. there with you. Yeah. See, this right. this is the problem again. It's what we talk yep. about in the because I have no control over what I listen to in the car with two young children. Yeah, uh, yeah. You so I I've got to, I've got to take the opportunity to listen. But you need to, to start shaping them. You need to start shaping them. You can introduce. I've tried, yeah, I've tried. It definitely hasn't worked. You know, maybe some <laughs> mighty lemon drops or some you know some yeah some, the jam that'd be a good introductory, right? Yeah, maybe I might I might go. I'm a big. I've got two daughters, so I'm a big believer in in, in sort of strong. Um, you know, female icon. So, you know, I, yep. I, I probably will bring Kate Bush into it at some point. There you go. You know, yeah. Kate Bush Who, is amazing. Uh, how, how old are your daughters? Uh, two and five. Okay. Oh, that's that's the same split I have. Mine are now uh, 14 and 11. So um, you've, you've got a, a good ride ahead of you. I was gonna say, young, does, it get, does it get easier? Does it get easier, Brian? <laughs> does it get easier? It gets easier and it gets more difficult when they start becoming, um, you know, young women. Uh, then you, you really lose control of them. Suddenly so, you uh, become the enemy. Yeah, so I, I give you, um, you know, all the sympathy in the world. Um, you're you're going to have, it's the best yeah. thing in the world, though. Solid, uh, love, solidarity. Love, yeah, love having daughters. What is your favorite item in the RAF Museum's collections? Oh, that's a great question. So my favorite aircraft is what? our, is my favorite aircraft is our, is our Bristol Bowfighter that we've got here. It's a slightly left field choice because uh, the Bowfighter is basically like a basically like the A10 of its age. It's just this it's just this thing that's incredibly up armored and designed to ruin your day in as many ways possible. Uh, and it played a really increasingly important role. It's one of these rare aircraft that they design it for one thing and find that actually it's really good at a lot of other things as well. Uh, and that doesn't happen a lot with British aircraft. A lot of them are designed for one thing and then they're terrible at that. <laughs> uh let alone being good at it first so that's my favorite aircraft my favorite thing in the collection is uh we have baron von richthofen's little blue glass dog lucky mascot really yeah and was that taken off of his body when the british no it wasn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't taken off his body it was basically it was um it was a, it was it was in his possessions and then it went through various hands and ended up in the collection of the rf wow. in the aftermath of the war 
We've got fabric from his aircraft and that sort of thing as well. But yeah, his little, and it's just because again, everyone knows who the Red Baron is. You know, you you might not know anything about the First World War in the air. You might not know anything about combat aviation at all, but you probably know who the Red Baron is. Right. Um, Or at least, or at least you've picked up one of the cultural references around it. You know, I mean, he's basically in the, I mean, he's, there's a, the Simpsons explains everything. You know, there's always a Simpsons quote for, virtually every situation in life and that you know the baron is the, is the figure who comes in in this triplane in the episode where um uh Apu and manjula have uh, octoplets yeah yeah uh, right. the baron is a figure in there and he comes in in a triplane so you know every, that is that is full-on cultural saturation i think when you've reached that point yeah. spitfire or hurricane oh, i'm gonna go the easy choice and it's spitfire okay i appreciate i appreciate the hurricane you know don't get me wrong a lot of love for that the the, the efforts it put in, but the, the Spitfire is one, it's iconic, two, it's what I fell in love with. I wanted to be a Spitfire when I was five years old. I, didn't want to, <laughs> I wanted to be one. I didn't want to fly one. I wanted to be one. It's the, the, that's one of the reasons I love the RAF Museum is seeing them here and reading about them. Um, but also, you know, it's the only, it's the only fighter the, the RAF make before the war, during the war, and after the war. Okay. So it, it's it's really it is really key and significant, you know. It's, it's significant is about the Britain overplayed, you know. I'm not going to contest the, uh, the 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 people that are going to point out that about the hurricane and the workhorse there, but it's uh, it's adaptability, it's ongoing importance, um, and its iconography in the RAF are, are second to none. So yeah, I've got to go with that. I think you may have just uh, found you know a, 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 what we call a side hustle. Um, you know, think about Thomas the Train and and how much money was made there. You could do Sammy the Spitfire. I see a children's book series. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got it. That you could take that to the higher ups and uh, you know get that happening at the museum. Yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I should. But then, but then we'll get bogged down in which mark we use. You know, okay, is it a mark? Yeah. Is it you know? We've right. got the oldest spit. We've got the oldest Spitfire still in existence in the world, but we've got a classic Mark Five. Uh, we've got Mark 19, we've got Mark 24. I mean, yeah, it's... Yeah, all right. Wow. Yeah. Can of worms might be there. Plug and shout out for Spitfire beer. Great ads. I love the advertising, right? Yeah. But I'm easily entertained. All right, best World War II film. Um, oh, I mean, The Cruel Sea uh, is, a, is, is brilliant. Uh, but I'm actually going to... I'm going to say Went the Day Well uh, is a pretty... It's a pretty good one. It's sort of it's, it's a, again it's a it's a propaganda film. It's about um, essentially a German infiltration of a of a village, um, and then the village fighting back. And it's got some pretty chilling scenes in it. You know, it's got a um, it, it, it for a, particularly for for nineteen forties era uh, cinema. So yeah, yeah I, I, I think I would I would I would go with that. But you know, honourable mentions to uh, millions like us, where eagles dare. I mean, obviously, you know, yeah. Clint Eastwood with his inexhaustible supply of ammunition. Um, broadsword calling Danny boy broadsword Broadsword calling Danny Danny boy Boy, exactly have you read that little book there's a little book I have yeah Yeah, about the guy watching the film about the guy watching the film yeah Yeah. actually it's 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 really it's really a great great little book oh it's I'm glad someone someone else has read that that's very cool all right this is a really important one uh favorite spice girl (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I don't know You've got to come up with one, man. Come on. Ginger Spice. All right. Okay. There you go. Fair enough. We'll yeah. take that. Jerry Hallowell. That, that, that which been, is, that which one is one Christian Horner married to? Uh, who runs Red Bull F1? He's married to one of them. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't know that? Yeah. I'm going to get it. Back on probably. you, Bill. Who's your, who's your favorite Spice girl? Oh, <laughs> yours, Brian. I mean, yeah. I, I would go with I, Baby Spice, would be my favorite. Yeah, just we got to go with Baby know. Spice. Yeah, just back in the day, you know, when I was. And, and there's, it's also our, our department chair's nickname from among her 
yeah. her friends, uh, oh, really? baby spice. So, so, so we got that on her, uh, which is, which is great. Yeah. All right. So I'm making an assumption here that like most Brits, you are a fan of curry. Absolutely. Correct? Okay. Absolutely. So, um, around your flat, um, in greater London, uh, give a shout out to the best, uh, takeaway. So, so I've got to say that the, the best, uh, curry that I, I had was a place called Safrani in uh where my where my previous two flats ago was uh where I first lived with my wife uh in Angel in North London Safrani on Cross Street um okay. lo- love that uh now I live out in the sticks I live out in Hertfordshire now um because you know you know growing up in children and needing the garden right, etc right, yeah um uh, and around me there's I've got to say there's not there's not a brilliant selection around where I am um there's a good place called Schemmel in uh, in Northwood uh, which is near me. They 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 do us pretty well. So uh, yeah, if uh, okay, hurry in the local area, I, I do that. But if I'm ever in central London, I'm uh, I'm definitely going. Uh, I'm definitely going to Safrani. Nice. All right. So we have an ongoing uh, tally here uh, on on the pod uh, related to American barbecue. What do you think is is American barbecue pork or is it brisket? So, so it's important as my experience of American barbecue so far is distilled entirely through sort of imports to the British market okay. where you, you, you can go and you can drink American beer and, you know, put up with American beer because you get to eat great food. Um, uh, and and there, there, there might, you know, there'll be, a, there might be a, there might you be can a, drink a, water and have good food. Yeah. There might be a college game or something on the, on the, uh, on the TV or something. Um, I mean, in, in those, it's always invariably both. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes with sometimes with even with chicken as well, uh, which I understand is really pushing the boat out. I think I've got a. I think beef is where I, I end up being more comfortable. I think you know, brisket is it. just is you know, yeah. It's just it, Ob- it, it, obviously Mad Cow didn't have the impact on your childhood that that it should have. <laughs> yeah, or or it had all the worst kind of impact imaginable. Right. Yeah. Was- right. There you go. Good point. I got a quick, I got a quick bonus question for you. Uh, what, what, uh, who's your rugby club? Who do you support? Uh, wasps. So my rugby wasps. club are, are, wasps. are wasps. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They, they did me a bit, they did us a bit dirty because, uh, well, yeah, they, they, so they used to be my local club and they played in West London and then they moved to, to High Wycombe, which is, you know, the next town over from where I grew up. So I used to see them a lot and had some great, great, great days and, 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 and watch them in their pokey old little stadium in the bottom of, uh, at the bottom of industrial estate in, in, in High Wycombe. Uh, but then they moved up to Coventry uh, in the Midlands, and you know I understand why Sam the club was basically going out of business and was going to die if they hadn't moved. Right. But uh, it certainly made it less convenient. And, uh, and my, my wife is a Sar- my wife and my wife's family are Saracens. Saracens, okay. Holders. Oh, interesting. So I, so I go to Saracens a lot. Um, you know, who says who says marriage isn't about compromise, eh? Yeah. So. <laughs> yep. Brian, yeah, I don't know, I, man. This was this was pretty good. This I, was great. This, I, this I learned. Was, and, you know, we'll we'll say this uh, whenever we you know start putting tweets out and stuff. Um, anybody out there uh, who you ever find yourself in London, you know, take some time, go up and see what uh, Peter is part of up at the RAF Museum. Um, you know, sounds like some really good stuff going on there. And it has really been uh, a pleasure to talk with you. Really appreciate it. Not at all. I mean, honestly, guys, the, the pleasure's all mine. I mean, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I, I, as, I, as I said, you know, going through the back catalogue of the people who are on here, people who've inspired me, who I, who I hugely admire, uh, but also the opportunity to learn about from some new people's work too. So, you know, add to the ever-growing read, to read pile uh, of books. And it's been, <laughs> it's been amazing to, be able to talk about, you know, just a slightly different, slightly different way in which, uh, you know, history gets done here in the UK. And, you know, I know we've, uh, 
it's all been a bit of a rough time uh, with COVID. No one's really gone anywhere recently. But hey, look, you, you know, you, you guys in particular, and if you're ever over here, you know, you can come oh, yeah. up and see I, me. I, oh, I thank will, God. I will come up there for thank sure. Thank God. We, yeah. We, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. But yeah, thanks, Peter. This was fun. Not at all. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. Okay, that was fabulous. I was going to say it. I that was um, I, I just so much enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I was going to say the the Lawrence of Arabia story. He right, I was about to has, say he probably yeah. has dozens of those stories. Yeah, that that yeah. is like a dream job to be able to you know you, you're a historian, but you're going out basically looking for artifacts. Right. And and trying to convince people to to either hand them over or trying to raise money so that you can buy them. That's a dream job. I mean, for especially the public history people who who listen to this, or or anyone who's listening and and thinking about getting into history, you know, working for museums, if if you can land the right thing, it's a really, and it doesn't matter if it's a local or regional deal or a big national outfit like like where he's at, it's it's really rewarding, and you really get to do a lot of neat things, and you really get a lot, you get to interact with a lot of really interesting people. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, but there's also the, the very, you gotta, you gotta tell a story and you gotta honor both the history, but also the prevailing narrative a little bit because you gotta get people in the door. It's, it's a yeah. really interesting field. Well, he, um, he made a really good point. You know, he said, people don't come to museums to read what's written on the walls. He said they come right. for stuff. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, for those of us who are working at universities, we we would be well served to remember that, um, yeah. that, you know, you think about some of the stuff you take into a classroom. If I take a 1917 German Stahlhelm and pass it around, man, that gets more of a reaction than anything that I've said the entire time. I mean, people yeah. like stuff. Anybody else out there listening, uh, you know, if you're doing interesting stuff, um, shoot us an email, um, either one of us and uh you know, if we get more people like Peter who want to be on, we, we are more than happy to. Uh, yeah, to absolutely. It I yeah, mean, it's it's was... a it's a totally different, you know, field beyond the, the traditional academic path. And uh, but but one that also works with that, with with people yeah. of more of our ilk. Yeah. Uh, but it's really an exciting, interesting area. And I, I, that was I, I mean, my head's just spinning. My my my, my, my yeah. wheel, the wheel's just going. I, the, the hamster, the hamster's on fire. Yeah. Um, really uh, just that was just really really intriguing and and good guy look forward to meeting him in person sometime yeah we, uh, we need to make that happen we got to do a tour man we got to get enough uh enough going on with this thing where we can just uh we can yeah, take right? off and do a, do a tour <laughs> <laughs> you know the stuff you should know guys you know they do that a lot they go, right, they go yeah. on a tour right and they'll, they'll yeah. they go to europe and stuff I, you know yeah i bet i bet I bet our our, uh, our our upper upper administration at Georgia Southern would uh, give us a little little money to support port that little travel, right? Absolutely. I, I we could I, wear we could wear Georgia Southern polo shirts, you know, out and about while we do it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We could we could make that happen. I think. And then how we work it into our classes. I mean, yeah. You know, that's really all we need, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, thanks everybody for listening. Keep pushing. Thank it. you. Share it. Yeah. More to come. All right. Take care.
Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not BJ Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.